Hello, and welcome to our Grains Convoy podcast series, brought to you by the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. These short podcasts aim to assist grain growers by delving deeper into our research projects that target crop protection, crop production, soils and genetics in broadacre crops. I'd like to acknowledge the Noongar people on the land I am recording this podcast and the Aboriginal people of the many other lands Deep Herd operates. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name is Cindy Webster and I'm a research agronomist based at Deep Herd's Narragin office. Today I'm talking with Dustin, aka Dusty, Sievertson, a Deep Herd research scientist based in Northam about diamondback moths. Welcome to the podcast, Dusty. Hi, Cindy. Dusty, can you tell us what your role is at Deep Herd? Sure. So I lead the field crop entomology team in the grains section. I've been in the department for 15 years now, and we yeah conduct research and extension programs, but we also do insect identification training as well for common pests and beneficials in broadacre crops and pastures. And so Dusty, it sounds like you cover a lot of insects with your work, but in this podcast, we're going to focus on the dumb and bat moth. So can you please tell us a bit about this pest and the impact it has on WA canola crops? Diamondback moth is a major pest of basically all brassica crops. So you can imagine there's a big section of horticulture in there. It's a really tiny moth and it's skinny. You probably don't often notice it unless you disturb plants. But yeah, they're a moth. They lay eggs on plants and the larvae hatch and, and feed on the plant parts and cause damage. But there are literally global conferences on this one species of moth basically because of how damaging it can be to horticulture, to oilseed industries like canola, but also because it's really renowned to develop insecticide resistance. So many things have, over the years have just become um, unusable. And so it's it's just become much more difficult to manage, I guess. And in, in Australia, regarding canola, it's basically became a much worse problem as more and more canola was planted. So, you know, it's from sort of the 90s onwards. And clearly now it's a, it's a major crop, especially given its price. Um, but it's not usually a pest of early season. Uh, in canola. It's usually a late, late season pest. So late winter into spring as temperatures increase, that's when it happens to coincide with the reproductive times of canola. So it has an opportunity to do quite a lot of damage, and, you know, remove buds and flowers, which would normally become pods and those pods would, would fill with seeds. Uh, they also drop down on a web when they're disturbed. And they also use that webbing to for to pupate on the plant. So generally, it's it's when major leaf defoliation occurs, I guess, and when they feed on the buds and the flowers is when when the worst case um, scenario happens. And Dusty, can you tell us about Deep Head surveillance program for this pest? So we've been doing pretty wide scale surveillance. This is the third full season we've been doing, and we've got one more. So this is as, as part of a co investment with GRDC. Uh, we've teamed up with grower groups, uh, Minganu Irwin Group, West Midlands Group, and Levy Group, and also Southeast Agronomy Research at Esperance to do these sort of survey, surveying all port zones for DBM moths and the larvae as well. Firstly, starting in the Greenbridge, so even before the seasons happen, before the canola is being sown, we want to see, you know, what, what are they doing, what populations are there, and, and what sort of risk does this pose? And then we select focus crops in each zone and we follow those through the season it's a case of just collecting as much data as we can on these we we extend the results through the pest facts newsletter so growers and agronomists can get that information as it's happening but one of the main parts of this project is we want to do a deep dive into i guess the statistics around what are the main drivers 
for Diamondback moth outbreaks? You know, as I mentioned, does it start early in the Greenbridge? Is that a major factor that we need to look into? Or is it is it more to do with the environmental variables during the season? But so, some of these factors we do, you know, generally know. So I mentioned wild radish weeds. They're a, they're a host being a brassica. We often find them pre-season. Things like daytime temperatures, things like time of crop germination. So when crops really get out of the ground early, we think it gives a bit of a head start if the diamondback moth are there already, particularly with summer rains causing a green bridge and this sort of thing. And we want to see how this correlates with larvae numbers, because ultimately it's the larvae that are doing the damage to the plants. And we have been hearing that Deep Herd is conducting automated trapping for some moth pests in WA. Are you doing automated trapping for diamondback moth? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, the tech we've been looking into over the past, I guess, five years so far. Um, technology's been changing quite a bit, and some of that is uh, trapping technology and sensors and, and things like that. People would have heard of all sorts of Internet of Things sensors and that, but it's part of a national project, which is called IMAP Pests. It's managed by Horde Innovation. What we've been doing in deeper is looking at what commercial options are there out there to, to trap some of our key pests and also maybe designing some in-house traps that sort of get around what, you know, things that we need. For example, budworm sort of, we need to trap in quite high numbers. So there's things like that that has been really interesting, but it's included diamondback moths. And so, you know, one of the major benefits of, of getting this technology going is the fact that we've got traps, you know, from Calberry to Esperance and everywhere in between. So we do have people doing manual trapping and we have to visit those frequently. And so if we can fill in some of those gaps, we don't have to visit actually until we have to change the pheromone lure. So yeah, it's been interesting. And, and with additional funds from GRDC recently, we're field validating some commercial traps. One's called the Trap View Wing Trap. Basically uses a sticky trap conveyor belt system. So instead of having to visit and replace the stickies, this can remotely actually change whenever you want it to change. And then it takes an image of the moths before it does that. And then it sends it to a, a dashboard we can look at and we can get the, the moth numbers remotely. So um, the initial results look pretty good, look pretty promising. But yeah, as I mentioned, it's been really handy in extending our manual trapping network. Diamondback moth can, I guess, have sort of isolated outbreaks. It doesn't happen across a huge area all at once. It can really ha happen over subregions. So the, the more dots we have on the map with traps, the better idea we get of what's going on. And that happened this year, which was quite good. And so, Dusty, take into account this season's surveillance findings and field reports that we've been receiving from the public. Have diamondback moth numbers been larger than usual this season? Yeah, well, the traps have been really handy this year in getting a heads up on the moth numbers. I guess early in the season, some some sites, we picked up low numbers of moths. But it was actually able to tell us pretty well in the eastern grain belt and the northern grain belt. I guess as a heads up of when the larvae numbers were going to increase, especially in the eastern grain belt, they had some issues during August, which is you know quite early for the larvae to ramp up. But the moth numbers seem to match that quite well. So we're looking into um, you know, what is that that correlation, I suppose, and, and what at what time does the larvae start increasing? Because sometimes, even though the moths can be there in quite high numbers during, say, August, September, sometimes the larvae don't actually increase until it's too late. Basically, the, the, the crops are potted up and the, the window now between harvesting or swathing, it's not consequential. So that that's good when that happens, where we don't actually have to spray. And for the WA grain belt, what do you think have been contributing factors to recent high numbers of diamondback moths and caterpillars? Yeah, as I mentioned, I think we have to do a bit of a deeper dive into the statistics of exactly the factors that, because there's so many factors contributing, we want to know what are the major ones and what are the combinations. But generally, we do know some of the drivers. For example, 
moisture-stressed crops, which did happen this year in August in some of the eastern grain belt areas. Um, so we haven't really looked into much to do with nutrient stress, I suppose, but certainly moisture stress. We know that DBM do much better on, more, more nutritious, and the plant's less able to protect itself and less able to heal quickly and that sort of thing. But And, and things like, day, yeah, I mentioned daytime temperatures for winter. So the, the forecast for this year for winter and early spring, I believe, was higher than average daytime temperatures. So that, that sort of thing we know is, is going to make diamondback moth increase more, but also the timing of, of germination of the crops. So we might have, you know, the earliest sown crop in a particular area is having diamondback moth larvae increasing and maybe even neighboring crops that germinated later ha- haven't had the opportunity for that yet. So there's those, those sorts of things. And also, as I mentioned, the brassica weeds, pre-season brassica weeds like wild radish and also during the season roadside weeds and things, they're all harboring diamondback moth. Not all Always, so that's another thing, I guess. Sometimes they're not in the green bridge, and we've looked for the moths and the larvae and done trapping. So that, that would be good to know as well if that's uh, a major driver. And Dusty, what are your tips for monitoring crops for diamondback moth? So our messaging is pretty consistent with the southern grains region over east, and we have some you know consistent messaging with GRDC which is that it's important to sweep net crops, especially from August onwards. August is a key time to get out sweep net and see see what's going on in the canopy. Everything's hidden in the canopy until you can actually sample it as such to see what, what is in there. And really to apply an integrated pest management strategy, which takes into account research-based thresholds. And these, these change as the season progresses. So spray thresholds can be as low as 30 larvae in 10 sweeps for pre-flowering stressed crops or maybe 50 for unstressed crops. So the reason they're, they're that low at that time is because it can, it can do more damage that results in basically in economic losses. But as flowering commences, those thresholds increase to 100 for sort of early flowering and as high as 200 as you head towards late flowering and potting stages. Just many more, the, the research has shown that many more are required to get that yield or, or quality loss. So yeah, that was based on a lot of lot of research that's happened in the past. Um, but when when sweep netting crops, it's also a good idea to keep your eye out for other things that you're picking up, especially natural enemies that you might pick up. So this is something we're trying to look into more and more as well, especially across the regions. We don't know where these natural enemies are and what sort of what time of the year. Often we'll find you know tiny wasps that commonly will parasitize the larvae. There's also ladybird beetles, lacewing larvae. They're actually moving, they're often affiliated with feeding on aphids, but actually they'll, they feed on moth eggs as well. So they're really good at cleaning up moth eggs. For diamondback moth and for, for native budworm eggs, we just need to know a bit more about you know, how many are there and what's going to be of benefit to us, I suppose. But having said that, sweet netting crops, really tall crops, is, is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And it's, it can be quite frustrating as well. We try our best, I suppose, but really we need some other technique to sample DBM and very thick, tall crops. So one of the things we're looking at is a sweet netting with a drone, but it's kind of early days I guess, to, to get this technique and to be reliable and to, and to validate it against our thresholds. But yeah, it's re- really difficult late in the season to sweep net crops. And then we're thinking, well, is that threshold, you know, accurate and that sort of thing for that. So, And Dusty, when managing diamondback moth, they are developing some resistance to some insecticides, synthetic pyrethroids. How can growers sustainably manage this pest if numbers are high? Yeah, this is the major headache, I suppose, apart from the fact that Diamondback moth have such a short life cycle, so they reproduce so fast because their life cycle can be as short as a, a, a week or two, especially in warm weather. So 
the numbers ramp up really fast. That's a headache. But the other major headache is the fact that they have just developed resistance to so many chemicals. So as part of this GRDC project, we did some work with Dr. Kim Perry and his colleagues at Sardi in South Australia. We sent a bunch of DBM samples from all of our different port zones, all sort of scattered all over to them so they could test them in their DBM resistance lab. It wasn't surprising, I suppose, that they found high levels of synthetic pyrethroid resistance that had been flagged in the past as well. I should mention, I think the last one of the reasons this was done is because I think the last time our DBM and WA were tested properly, it's probably close to 20 years now. So we wanted to see if there was some sort of change, something else we needed to worry about. But yeah, it wasn't surprising with the SPs, I suppose. But fortunately, they found that emamectin, which is the most commonly used one now, trade name is a firm, but there's also some other trade names out there now, had a very good mortality rate. Although it's started to differ a bit from their susceptible colony, they have a long-running susceptible colony. It's starting to differ a bit from that, but still the field rates are very effective. But I think they're just going to keep their eyes on that going forward, whether that's going to be an ongoing thing. They also tested two chemicals that are due to become registered for DBM and canola, a couple of diamides called chlorantranilipril and cyclonilipril. They were very effective in their tests as well. So that's that's good news at their field rates. Another one I guess is a bit overlooked is a chemical called spinatorum and the trade name is Success Neo. This one, a lot of growers in WA, canola growers, I should say, are probably less less familiar with this one, but it is registered and it had come out of horticultures and it was probably the reason why it was it was quite pricey. But they found really good results in these tests on WA populations against DBM. So I think um that's probably come down in price over the years and might be something we need to look at a bit more, uh, I guess, going forward, especially if we want to be able to rotate chemicals, which is a really important part of an integrated pest management strategy is if we're, if we're throwing one active at it continuously, it's likely to develop resistance. In, in terms of uh, chemicals, though, here in Deepherd, we, we produce a winter-spring insecticide guide and we update that every year so that's everything that is registered according to the APVMA people can get their hands on that on the PestFacts website. Thanks Dusty and where can growers find more information about diamondback moth? Yeah there's quite quite a bit on the internet I think if you put diamondback moth in your search engine with either DPIRD or GRDC you'll find some really good links to information especially GRDC's best practice guide that kind of sums up I suppose the monitoring techniques how best to approach the chemicals and at different times of the year, the thresholds and that sort of thing, and insect yes, insecticide information. But here in WA, if you want more info, or even if you want caterpillars identified, that's a really important part of integrated pest management is to properly identify your caterpillars because native budworm, which do attack canola, they can be very tiny just at that early stage, and sometimes they're misidentified as well. But you can get in touch with us in the PestFacts WA team. There's also the PestFacts WA reporter app, you can send images through, so phone cameras are really good these days. We often get um, photos sent through, and often we can identify them if it's a good picture. But yeah, certainly get in touch with us in the PestFacts WA team. Thank you very much for your time today, Dusty. Thanks, Indy. You have just listened to Dusty Sivertson from DeepHerd. If you like this podcast, you can download and subscribe to DeepHerd's Grains Convo podcast series on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. My name is Cindy Webster, and thank you for listening.